welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us today, this Wednesday in the uh, second week of Eastertide. Hope you're having a great Easter season and a, a blessed Easter season. And, uh, you know, when the church came up from the catacombs, Easter week, which we just celebrated, was was uh, celebrated as a week-long holiday with the faithful assisting at Mass every day of the week. Um, and it was obligatory uh, after, you know, the church came up out of the con- uh, catacombs. By the late 11th century, Mass was obligatory only three days of the week. And then by the turn of the 20th century, uh, Easter Monday was the only day of Easter week that remained a day of obligation. And it remained a holy day of obligation until 1911. Now, my old Sunday Missal still includes all the, the weekdays of Easter. And I bring this up because, uh, like a lot of parishes, uh, the one my family attends has a, a company, a service, that publishes our weekly bulletin. So we provide the mass times and a letter from the pastor and the various announcements and advertisements and whatnot, and they put it all together nice and, and provide uh, some features like a prayer of the week and a profile of a saint and a short piece called Treasures of Our Tradition. And I just wanted to share with you the offering uh, from this last Sunday, the octave of Easter. It said that uh, an ancient title for this feast was Dominica in Alba, or Albis, which is Alb Sunday, or Sunday in white. Uh, The reason being that the newly baptized were invested with a white garment at Easter that they wore for this full week of celebration until the Sunday following Easter. Okay, so far so good. But then the article claims, quote, in later centuries, the energy of new life at Easter was largely forgotten. And this Sunday was renamed Quasimodo Sunday, or Low Sunday. It goes on to say that only in recent years have we rediscovered that Easter is a privileged time for celebrating and renewing baptism. Quote, there is nothing low about this Sunday, unquote. Now, okay, I know it's just a bulletin article, okay? But we live in an age when access to information is greater than any time in history. And and frankly, there's just no excuse uh, for this kind of nonsense being distributed in Catholic bulletins. You know, for one thing, the feast was not renamed, all right? In the extraordinary form, the official title of the feast is still Dominica and Alba. My my missile says Dominica and Alba or Low Sunday. Uh, the name Low Sunday and Quasimodo Sunday were popular conventions that eventually became, uh, you know, uh, came into uh, kind of universal use. See, it's true that in earlier times that those who had been baptized on Holy Saturday laid aside their white garments on Low Sunday. But there was more. See, on Dominica and Albis, on the Sunday after Easter, they placed about their necks something called an Agnus Dei. It's a little wax medallion uh, uh, made out of white wax, had an impression of the uh, familiar image of the Lamb of God holding a banner, and, and it was blessed by the Pope. Okay, And, and they were, uh, the catechumens were invested in this now to remind them continually uh, to stay in a state of grace, to preserve their baptismal innocence unstained. And therefore, the church sings at the introit of this mass, quasi modo geniti, as newborn babes, alleluia, desire to drink the, the irrational milk without guile, alleluia, alleluia. It's from 1 Peter 2. Hence, you know, quasi modo geniti, hence quasi modo Sunday. And in the next verse of the introit is rejoice to God our helper, sing aloud to God of Jacob, uh, which is also from the Psalms. Now, it became known then in England and in the other Anglophone countries as Laud Sunday, Laud being the Latin for praise, and then 
over time it became went from Lord Sunday to Low Sunday, kind of like All Hallows Leave um, got condensed into Halloween. Okay, you gotta love English. But despite what the article suggests, Catholics never considered anything about this Sunday to be quote unquote low. Dom Prosper Garanger, the great liturgist and uh, author of the classic multi-volume work, The Liturgical Year, he said, such is the solemnity of Low Sunday that not only is it of a double rite, which is, you know, the highest kind of feast, but no feast, however great, can be kept upon it. See, since Easter is a movable feast uh, that's always celebrated on a Sunday, it falls on different calendar days each year, uh, uh, the, the Lee Octave likewise. But if Easter or the octave were to fall on another feast day, no matter how important it was, it would be entirely superseded. Now, of course, Dom Garanger lived 80 years before the birth of, uh, or died, I should say, 80 years before the birth of St. Faustina, so he never heard of Divine Mercy Sunday, which, strangely, this article also failed to mention. You know, strange because, uh, especially because it's a Novus Ordo, you know, uh, ordinary right kind of publication. Okay, well, just needed to get that off my chest. Uh, now I'd like to proceed, as usual, with the uh, traditional readings for uh, the Sunday that began this week. In this case, Dominica and Alba, or Low Sunday. And the epistle is taken from 1 John 4, verses 4 through 10, and I'm going to be reading from the Dewey Rames version. I'll be talking later in the program about uh, why particularly. But, dearly beloved, who whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory which overcometh the world, our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Christ is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit which testifieth that Christ is the truth. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that give testimony on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are one. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God which is greater, because he hath testified of his Son, that he that believeth in the Son of God hath the testimony of God in himself. So St. John's telling us that by loving faith in Jesus as the Son of God, we can overcome the world because that faith shows us in God our Father, the, the world to come, our true country, uh, in Jesus our example, teaching us to love God above all things, and faith shows us to disregard the world and worldly goods and to strive for the eternal. St. John shows us that Jesus is the Son of God by the threefold testimony on earth of the water at his baptism in the Jordan, the blood of the Eucharist and his death on the cross, and the spirit of the miraculous effects wrought in those who believed, right, like Pentecost. And by the threefold testimony from heaven of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And lastly, we see in the water, uh, the spirit and the blood, the sacraments of initiation that we celebrate at Easter, um, baptism, confirmation, and Holy Communion. All right there in the New Testament. And now the Holy Gospel according to St. John, from John 20, 19 through 31. At that time, when it was late that same day, the first day of the week, and the doors were shut, where the disciples were gathered together for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, 
Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples, therefore, were glad when they saw the Lord. He said, therefore, to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. And whose sins you shall retain, <clears throat> they are retained. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Jesus cometh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put in thy finger hither, and see my hands, and bring hither thy hand, and put it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith to him, Because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. Many other signs also did Jesus in the sight of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now this gospel raises a number of questions, and it's, it's by answering the questions of the text <clears throat> that we can read the Bible existentially. All right, that is to say that we can apply what we read to ourselves. For example, why didn't Thomas believe the appearance of Christ to the other disciples? Uh, why did God allow his disbelief? What does it mean to believe in God, and what must we believe? Why must we believe it? Uh, how can we certainly know what God has or has not revealed, and which is the one true faith? Okay, now we're going to answer all of those questions and more when we come back after this break. Uh, also, last week, we talked about evangelization, and I promised that I would talk this week about what uh, St. John Paul II said about evangelizing through the media, and especially the internet, because that's something that, uh, that we are all involved in today. And so all of that and more when we return. Uh, also, before we break, I just wanted to remind you that we have a men's conference coming up in June, Saturday, June the 18th at the historic Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. Uh, you can come and hear live presentations from uh, Terry Barber and Jesse Romero, hosts of the Terry and Jesse Show. Also, uh, Ruben Nava uh, is going to be there from Jesus 911 also. Registration is open right now, $35 for a single registration, $50 per couple. And you can register online at virginmostpowerfulradio.org, or you can call us toll-free at 877-526-2151. I know that it's a ways off, but this one always sells out. So if you want to go, I suggest you register early and uh, hope to see you there. In the meantime, we will be back in just a few moments with uh, lots more right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio and No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us through the break, and we'll be back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we were talking about the gospel from Low Sunday, which is the episode from St. John uh, of the resurrection of Christ uh, and him coming to see the disciples on Easter and then again on Low Sunday, the episode that we refer to as the Doubting Thomas, because St. Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared and did not believe the word of the other apostles. And why so? Why, why did he not believe? Well, again, if you notice, Scripture says that his name was Thomas, who was called Didymus. And Didymus is a Greek word that means twin. So <clears throat> when you think about it, you know, you can kind of expect that a fellow with a twin brother probably had been dealing with uh, situations of mistaken identity his whole life. So of all the disciples, all the apostles, he had the most reason to think that the others only saw somebody that they thought was Jesus. And so his condition, except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, of course, eight days later on Low Sunday, Christ appears again and, and takes away all doubt from Thomas who responds by falling to his knees and testifying, my Lord and my God. And I believe that God allowed Thomas's disbelief so that we would be uh, strengthened in our faith as a result. You know, as Jesus said, because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. And so according to, to St. Gregory the Great, this episode only makes the resurrection of Christ that much more credible and certain for us. You know, the church teaches us that uh, to believe in God means to receive as absolutely certain whatever God has revealed to us, even if it's beyond our comprehension. That is to say, even, even if it's mysterious and, and something that, that, that uh, the human mind can't fully understand. So for a Catholic, to believe in God means to believe all that God has revealed, because God, the infallible truth, has revealed it. Now, this belief is both, you know, it's rational, it's reasonable, and it is necessary for salvation. The question is, how can we know for certain what God has or has not revealed, and what constitutes the one true faith? Now, you know, some people would say, what's well, the Bible? But given the fact that there's something like 40,000 different Christian denominations today, obviously not everybody uh, is, is taking the same message away from that inspired book. So the answer, how can we know for certain what God has revealed, is through the Church, which is guided by the Holy Spirit to all truth, and in which Christ dwells, as he promised, till the end of time. Particularly, um, obviously, he, dwell, he dwells in us when we are in a state of grace. He dwells in the Church in a special way, and um, especially physically in the Holy Eucharist, in the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, this month of April, by the way, is traditionally dedicated to the Holy Eucharist. So God is with the Church throughout time, with the, with the Holy Spirit and with our, the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist, and hence the act of faith. O oh my God, I firmly believe that you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches because you have revealed them. 
who are eternal truth and wisdom, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. In this faith I intend to live and to die. Amen. Now, if you can make the act of faith and mean it, congratulations, you're a traditional Catholic. Okay, no matter which form of the Mass that you might attend. But how do we know that the Catholic Church is the Church of Christ? Well, it's because, like the truth, the Church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The, the Roman Catholic Church alone possesses all the marks of the true Church. Uh, she alone has preserved unity in faith and in the holy sacraments and in communion with the, the Pope. She alone can trace her descent from the apostles to the present day and demonstrate this origin as well by her doctrine as by her, the succession of popes and bishops. She alone has all the means of salvation. She alone has produced the saints. Finally, she alone embraces all ages. Uh, as St. Augustine says, uh, that uh, shines from one end of the world to the other in the splendor of one and the same faith, inviting all to her bosom to bring them to Jesus. So if somebody uh, objects to, you know, some Catholic belief, saying, oh, no, what mass or purgatory, the priesthood, whatever, a Catholic can simply say, I believe these truths and, and the other matters of faith because God, who is truth, has revealed them. And I believe that he has thus revealed them because the, the Holy Catholic Church, which teaches them to me, has all the marks of the true Church of Christ guided by God and therefore cannot deceive me. So a final question here. Is it sufficient to have that true faith and to belong to the true Church? And the answer to that question is no. You must live according to the faith. That is, we must observe what it commands and avoid what it forbids. And that's why we should often make the act of faith, okay, every single day. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, one other thing deserves mention from the Gospel for Low Sunday is how our Lord breathed on the apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. This is the institution of the sacrament of penance. So the fullness of the priesthood being imparted through the Holy Spirit by our Lord Jesus Christ. He established the church to continue his earthly ministry until he returns. And his earthly ministry included the forgiveness of sins. Hence, he gave the apostles and their successors the power to forgive sins in his name. You know, sometimes you encounter people that seem to think that God is some kind of monster who's just waiting to catch them and throw them to hell. And nothing could be further from the truth. God wants you to spend eternity with him. He wants to forgive your sins if you'll only let him. Hence the sacrament of penance. You know, we're just talking about the act of faith. Every morning before I pray the liturgy of the hours, I make the morning offering and I make acts of faith, hope, charity, and contrition. Okay? Good way to start the day and to end it as well. And I suppose you know the story of Faust, right? The famous play by Goethe and the famous opera about a man who sells his soul to the devil, right? At the climax of the play, the devil grabs Faust and jumps through a trap door in a big puff of smoke, and that's the end of of poor Faust. Well, once upon a time in a production uh, at, in Breslau, Germany, the devil Mephistopheles grabbed Faust and was about to jump down into hell when the trapdoor stuck with him halfway through. 
So here's the poor devil, you know, stuck in the trap door and the audience going wild with laughter and applause because, you know, for once, Faust is finally saved. And we're all looking for a way to keep the doors of hell shut tight for us. And, and that way really is, is perfect contrition. And that's what the act of contrition is all about. You know, there's more than one kind of contrition, but an act of perfect contrition is a prayer where we tell God that we're sorry for our sins because we've offended him, just because we have offended him who is so good. And so the point is, if you find yourself in a position where you can't go to confession, you can make an act of perfect contrition. Of course, anytime you should fall into mortal sin, you should make this act of contrition. And, and you know from your catechism that God hears you when you pray and that he'll forgive your sins even before you go to confession, although you must intend to confess your sins when you have the chance, when you have the opportunity. You know, I mentioned I say the act of contrition in the morning before the liturgy of the hours, but an examination of conscience and, and a confidier is the traditional way to begin the night prayer, a compline of the liturgy of the hours. And it's a good custom whether you pray the hours or not. And and just the just the act of contrition that you use in confession. All right, I use the traditional one. And you can see how it works. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. So you notice we start off by saying we're sorry, and then we follow with the reasons why we're sorry. I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. Well, that's imperfect contrition, but that's sufficient in the sacrament of penance. But most of all, because I've offended thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. Now that's perfect contrition. And even if you're not feeling it, you're making the act, you're using your intellect and will to make an act of perfect contrition. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins. That's the intention to go to confession when we can to do penance and amend my life. Amen. See, confession isn't complete till we've completed the penance the priest gives us and to have that firm purpose of amendment, firm purpose of amendment to help us to keep from falling back into sin. You know, because the meaning and purpose of life is to know, love, and serve God in this life and be happy with him forever in the next you know, I, I saw an article from our Sunday visitor last week where Monsignor Charles Pope was answering questions. And one of them was, in our prayers, we ask that the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace. He said, eternal rest doesn't sound as though there's much joy or happiness in heaven. You know, and I get that you know, somebody once said that millions of people long for eternity who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy afternoon. <laughs> but Monsignor gave this great answer. And that he said that rest in this context means to be free from your labors and from the, the, the tiresome ups and downs uh, of this world. In other words, words it, it, it's the world that's tedious and boring, okay? Not heaven. Uh, according to Monsignor, when God rested on the seventh day of creation, he didn't take a nap. He enjoyed the fruits of his creative work. And so we are commanded to rest on the Sabbath, right? The Lord's Day, Sunday for Christians. Uh, and to refrain from unnecessary work and spend time enjoying our families and the fruits of our own labors. And that's the thing that struck me. He said, um, as for the word eternal, it does not merely signify the length or duration of something. Technically speaking, eternity doesn't signify the length or duration of anything. Because eternity, it, it, eternity was the state in which God 
existed before the creation of the universe, which includes the creation of time. Eternity is outside of time. All right. There isn't before and after in eternity. So it just is right. It totally makes sense, right? Uh, that, that, that God exists, uh, outside of time. And that when we spent eternity with God, that we are existing in this, this state that is also outside of time. Okay. So eternal doesn't signify a long, long time. Monsignor says, rather, it signifies the fullness of something. Hence, eternal life doesn't really mean to live forever and ever and ever. It means to enjoy the fullness of life. So in heaven, we will be fully alive and freed from bur uh, burdens and sorrows and setbacks. And we will have, as he says, joy unspeakable and glories untold. And that's what Easter is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> okay, when we return uh, after the break, we're going to talk about what John Paul II, St. John Paul II, said about evangelizing through the media. Media is a huge part of our lives today, much more so when John Paul spoke uh, at the beginning of the millennium. So we're going to talk about evangelizing through the media and what you can do when we come back with lots more after this. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And last week, we spoke about evangelization, and especially what St. John Paul II had said about evangelization. And I said that this week, I would uh, tell you what he had to say about evangelization through the media. And this is going back to the year 2000, right? So the year before the, uh, the turn of the millennium. Pope St. John Paul II said... Our duty to bear witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus and his saving presence in our lives is as real and pressing as was the duty of the first disciples. We must tell the good news to all who are willing to listen. Direct personal proclamation, one person sharing the faith in the risen Lord with another, is essential. So are other traditional forms of spreading the word of God. But proclamation today must take place also in and through the media. Uh, now, this is the year 2000, and he was talking primarily about traditional media. So newspapers and magazines, radio, and, of course, television. Television being uh, the big dog in this game. And uh, while television, uh, televangelism, if you will, um, today seems to be dominated by evangelical, you know, health and wealth preachers like Joel Olstein or Benny Hinn. Uh, it's well to remember that the very first televangelist, and I would say still the best, was Venerable Fulton J. Sheen and his program, Life is Worth Living. You know, it's hard to imagine a time when a Catholic archbishop would have a, a network TV show, much less win a primetime Emmy Award, but Sheen did it. And so it was, it was Fulton Sheen. It was a Catholic who inspired the pioneering uh, evangelical Christian broadcasters like Pat Robertson or like Dr. Robert Schuller was very influenced by, by Bishop Sheen with his Hour of Power um, television program. And he actually borrowed that title from one of Sheen's writings when he was writing about uh, the, his daily holy hour. He called that the Hour of Power. And uh, uh, Schuller liked it enough to 
uh, use it for the name of his own program. And of course, there, I mean, there's still a small army of evangelical televangelists today. But the Catholic presence uh, in that media is also going strong as well. In fact, the Eternal Word Television Network, right, EWTN, founded by Mother Angelica, is now the largest religious media organization in the world. First and biggest. That's that's pretty much the Catholic way, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but what about you and me, though? That's, that's, that's the question here. What about individual Catholics? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, you and me sharing the faith. And, and how does evangelizing through the media affect us? Well, again, all the way back in the year 2000, uh, John Paul II said, we mustn't forget that modern technology offers us new opportunities for evangelization. See, in the year 2000, the percentage of adult Americans who were online reached a majority, 52%, okay, for the first time in the year 2000, just a bare majority, and the church took notice. And two years later, in 2002, it was up to 69%. Last year, okay, the last statistic I could find on this, by 2021, 92% of Americans are online, 85% say they go online every day, and 31% say that they are online almost constantly. And I, presumably they have to sleep sometime. Uh, but St. John Paul said back in, in 2002, right, so two years after that first statement, he said, the Internet can offer magnificent opportunities for evangelization if used with competence and a clear awareness of its strengths and weaknesses. The church, he says, is determined to enter this new forum armed with the gospel of Christ. And of course, I mean, today there are, there are I mean, there's countless Catholic websites and blogs and so on. Um, and personal media, uh, uh, evangelization through media, has, has come a long way, all right, from, from people, <laughs> pardon me, from people holding up signs that say John 3.16, you know, when the TV cameras pan the, the audience at the ball game, um, you know, uh, to, to uh, social media today, you know, and, and John 13 is the heart of, I mean, we make fun of it now, but John 13 is the heart of evangelization. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. That's that's the good news we're supposed to be spreading here. And, and today, of course, when we talk about personal evangelization through the media, we are primarily talking about social media. And you know, and it's important, of course, to share the gospel uh, wherever you find yourself, uh, and according to your state in life and your circumstances. And that includes online. You know, and and there's plenty of people that I know. Uh, personally, who engage in online apologetics or have podcasts like this one or radio programs. But, you know, you don't have to go that far. Uh, we post links to our shows, for example, on Facebook every day. And pretty simple matter, if, if you're on that particular platform, to just, you know, you see the ones that interest you or that you think that might be helpful to people and just share it on your own Facebook page. You know, that that's a fairly painless way to evangelize. I think it's kind of the the modern version of leaving tracks at the dentist's office or at the bus station, right? Um, St. John Paul II said that the internet, internet causes billions of images to appear on millions of computer monitors around the planet. Of course, now today, that's billions of computer monitors. And he asked the question, will the face of Christ emerge and the voice of Christ be heard? 
This is what will make the internet a genuinely human space. For if there is no room for Christ, there is no room for man. And although I would hasten to add that uh, St. John Paul also said, electronically mediated relationships can never take the place of direct human contact required for genuine evangelization. For evangelization always depends upon the personal witness of the one sent to evangelize. And that's no nonsense. So in other words, yes, by all means, use your social media to uh, good effect by sharing the faith in, in, you know, however subtly, but don't uh, think that that uh, absolves you from the responsibility of living out your faith in your uh, actual life as well as your virtual life. Uh, okay, something else we talked about, uh, I think not last week, but the week before, uh, was the Shroud of Turin. And you know, the Shroud of Turin, this uh, 14-foot-long cloth with a frontal and dorsal image of a crucified man that many, including yours truly, believe to be an image of the crucified Christ, that the Shroud was the, the winding sheet of the Gospels. And uh, I just saw an article from the uh, National Catholic Register, sorry, rented lips, National Catholic Register, with the headline, New Scientific Data, or New Scientific Technique, dates Shroud of Turin to around the time of Christ's death and resurrection. And in the article, it's an interview with Italian scientist Liberato De Caro, where he discusses his peer-reviewed findings based on a new X-ray method of research that's used to determine uh, the age of uh, fibers, cloth fibers. And uh, Dr. DeCaro said, the Shroud of Turin is the most important relic of Christianity. According to Christian tradition, it is the burial shroud that wrapped the body of Jesus after his resurrection. For about 30 years, I have been using investigative techniques on the atomic scale in particular through x-rays. And three years ago, we developed, developed a new method for dating samples taken from linen fabrics, which he goes on to describe in, in, in great detail. I'm not going to burden you with all of that. The upshot is that this new dating method, based on a technique called wide-angle x-ray scattering, was, quote, first tested on linen samples already dated using other techniques, on samples that had nothing to do with the shroud, and then applied to a sample taken from the Shroud of Turin. And this is significant because back in 1988, there was a, a, a carbon-14 dating uh, that was done on some fibers, just, just a, some handful of little fibers from the Shroud. And they concluded that the fabric was only 700 years old. And so this allowed a whole lot of people to just dismiss the Shroud as a medieval forgery. Uh, although you have to discount all this, this other huge uh, body of evidence. You know, you have to understand it was only after the invention of photography that the shroud of image was discovered to be a negative image. It was never seen in the positive until the 19th century. And it makes you wonder, why would a medieval forger make an image that couldn't, you know, could only be seen <laughs> after the invention of photography hundreds of years later? I, you know, and for that matter, how could he do it? You know, and how like our Lord to to see to it that a relic like the Shroud of Turin would survive to our own day, you know, when people give more credence to the physical sciences than to the the higher sciences of philosophy and theology, you know, and and something that that uh, then can only be discerned through modern science. 
you know, it's still unknown how that miraculous image got on the cloth in the first place. And this latest discovery, although it's, yeah, I mean, it's not uh, conclusive, but it dates the shroud to the first century. And so it's just one more piece of evidence suggesting that the shroud was, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus, which, of course, I believe wholeheartedly. As St. Saint, uh, Thomas Aquinas famously said, for those who will not believe, no evidence is sufficient. And for those who do believe, no evidence is necessary. And like Jesus said in the Gospel for Low Sunday that we talked about before, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Uh, which reminds me, um, speaking of the readings from Low Sunday, I read today from the traditional Douay Reims translation. Now, if you've been listening to the show over the last few months, I'm sure that you're aware that, that I've been partial to using the New Catholic translation, New Catholic Bible translation. And largely because, I mean, modern English is easier to comprehend, and the New Catholic Bible is is actually pretty close to the New American Bible, which most Catholics are familiar with in, in this country, uh, but it doesn't suffer from inclusive language and, and, and some of the other uh, things in the New American Bible that do violence to the text. And But today I read from the Douay Reims, especially because of one verse, 1 John 5, 7, uh, and there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Extremely important verse of Scripture, and I'm going to talk about why um, I chose the Dewey Reams version for today's program when we come back with more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Okay, before we broke, I was mentioning the uh, verse from the reading from Low Sunday, 1 John 5, 7, and there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This is how it appears in the Douay Reims translation, which I chose for today's program. And I chose it because this verse does not appear in the modern English translations, any of them. And although it's in the old King James Bible as well as in the Douay Reims. And and why not? They, apparently it's due to a controversy, a modern controversy, over the fact that the verse doesn't appear in the oldest existing Greek manuscripts. Of course, when St. Jerome made his translation of the Latin Vulgate, he had manuscripts available to him that are no longer extant. I mean, he had uh, resources that modern scholars don't have. And Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, I just saw this on Facebook this morning, he wrote, um, whatever you may think about the status of this verse from a paleographical standpoint, uh, paleography being the study of ancient texts, whatever you think of it from a paleographical standpoint, it was received in the Catholic Church as a true assertion about God being included in the Vulgate, which contains no error in faith or morals as dogmatically taught by the Council of Trent and, he says, as liturgically apt. It was read for over a millennium on Low Sunday, where it remains to this day in the extraordinary form. And he writes about this uh, because after Traditionis Custodes, right, this uh, moto proprio from Pope Francis uh, limiting the traditional Mass, some bishops have required that the readings of the traditional Mass be done in the vernacular 
uh, according to the modern uh, official liturgical translations. But as, as Dr. Kuznetsky points out, since 1 John 5, 7 is nowhere to be found in the modern translations, it's nowhere in the Novus Ordo rec, uh, lectionary. And by the way, this is by no means the only example. Uh, he says there's no way to substitute vernacular readings for the Latin readings. You know, un, you know, unless you use the old uh, translation, which is why I use the Douay translation today. And, and I'll tell you right now, if I could only have one translation of the Bible, that would be the one. However, I, I, I can and do appreciate the modern translations. And, and while I, I, I certainly you know, prefer the New Catholic Bible translation to the New American Bible in most cases, it, but it just goes to show that there is no perfect translation, right? Earlier in the program, I shared some things that St. John Paul said in the year 2000 about the potential of the Internet. And this is one of the great benefits of the digital age. That, that you can easily uh, access multiple Bible translations to, you know, uh, on your computer, on your smartphone, including, if you're so inclined, even the original Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And that's not all. Uh, uh, St. John Paul II said, especially in an unsupportive culture, Christian living calls for continuing instruction and catechesis. And this is perhaps the area in which the Internet can provide excellent help. See, because today you can instantly access the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the United States Catechism for Adults, the Baltimore Catechism, the Penny Catechism, the Catechism of St. Pius X, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, a.k.a. the Roman Catechism, Catechetical Instructions of St. Thomas Aquinas, and on and on and on. So, you know, there's, there's no excuse to not uh, continue your, um, your catechesis when all of that is available instantly for free. You know, no generation of Catholics ever had those kind of resources available to them. So a final thought on this, this reading of the first epistle of John. By the time John composed that letter, so it's circa 80, 85, most of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry were, were dead. Uh, and some of these second or third generation Christians started to have doubts about what they've been taught about Jesus, started, you know, thinking their own way. And as the church spread to different cultures and so forth, the heresy spread as well. And especially uh, some Hellenistic Christians had a hard time believing that Jesus was human as well as divine. You know, largely because in, in Platonic thought, the, the spirit is all important. Uh, for Plato, the body was just a prison from which uh, one desired to escape. And so, heresies developed from trying to unite that kind of philosophy with Christianity, <clears throat> which only goes to show why it is that bad philosophy makes for bad theology. You know, a particularly widespread heresy uh, held that Jesus was actually a spirit who only appeared to have a body, and hence was called docetism from the Greek word meaning to seem, right? According to the docetists, uh, Jesus cast no shadow. He left no footprints. They said, yes, he's really God, but he only seemed to be a man. And another heretical teaching uh, was related to the philosophy of Gnosticism, from the Greek word meaning knowledge, right? Esoteric, hidden knowledge. The Gnostics held that spirit is good, but that all physical matter was, in fact, evil. They were dualists. They believed that there were two gods. 
a good God who created spirit and an evil God who created matter, right? The one who created the earth in, in six days, that's the evil God in their uh, opinion. And because they hated matter, they considered procreation evil. They denied the reality of sin, right? Because the, phys the physical is just evil doesn't matter. They believed that only those with the, the secret esoteric knowledge, only the intellectually enlightened, okay, with the special knowledge, which is not unlike a lot of people today, that only those people are, are, you know, can be saved. And so naturally, both these groups found it hard to believe in a savior who was fully human as well as divine. And St. John answers these false teachers as an eyewitness to Jesus' life on earth. He saw our Lord. He talked with him. He touched him. He knew that Jesus was more than a mere spirit. This is what we proclaim to you, what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Right? He just went through all the senses there. We are speaking of the word of life. That's the very first uh, verse of the first letter of St. John, where he establishes that Jesus was alive before the world began, and also that he lived as a man amongst men and women on the earth. In other words, he was both human and divine. Now, through the centuries, many heretics have denied that Jesus was both God and man. In John's day, people had trouble believing he was a human. Today, more people have trouble believing that he was God. But that the two natures in, in one person, the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is, is truly God and truly man, that is the, the pivotal issue of Christianity. So before you accept what, what any religious teacher has to say about this topic, you listen carefully, about any topic, listen carefully to what they believe about Jesus. Because to deny either his divinity or his humanity is to consider him less than Christ our Savior. Okay. Now, John counters these, these two false teachings, the major threads of these, uh, two major threads of these false teachings, in the first letter of John. It's a, it's a short read. I suggest you do it. Just sit down and read it. It's awesome. You know, the, the, these heretics denied Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. And John said that if we believe that Jesus is God incarnate and keep his commandments, then we are the children of God. Right? Since they denied the reality of sin, John says that if we continue in sin, we can't claim to belong to God. If we say we have no sins, we're, we're only fooling ourselves, and we're, we're blind to the truth. First John uh, uh, 8 through 10, uh, he says, if we claim that we are sinless, we're only deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. If we say that we have never sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And so here's another way that this epistle relates to the gospel for Low Sunday, where Jesus breathes on the apostles and gives them the power to forgive sins. It is, it is of, of course, God who forgives sins, with the priest acting in the person of Christ. As it says in Matthew 9, 8, after Jesus cured the paralyzed man, you know, to prove that he had the power to forgive sins. Scripture says, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God for having given such authority to men. And that was the authority that Christ breathed on the apostles uh, on that first Easter. And that is no nonsense. Okay, uh, a final thought. 
April is traditionally the month of the Holy Eucharist. And I recently read a story about a little Catholic mission down in Tennessee. They had no church building, uh, so they met first in a, in a community room at a local service club and then in someone's basement. Uh, and then finally, as the congregation grew, they got enough money to build a 5,000-square-foot multi-purpose building where they can both uh, gather for various events and uh, have mass. And they have the sanctuary curtained off so that they can rearrange the tables and chairs and use the same space for all of their activities as well as Holy Mass. And, of course, they don't have all the signs that you expect in a Catholic church, you know, the stained glass windows and, and statuary and so on. But in the article I read, they, they quoted a homily from their priest who said that the most important sign in the building is the exit sign because we are meant to bring Christ to the world. They tell us the word mass comes from the word misa uh, via missio, which in Latin is to send. Hence, at the end of mass, the priest says, ite misa est, I go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And let's remember for the, for the rest of this month of the Holy Eucharist, that when we go to mass and we receive the blessed sacrament, that Christ is with us and that we take him out into the world. So I'd like to uh, close with a prayer for the month of April. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, I believe that in the Holy Eucharist, you give us the graces to enter into the mystery of your redemptive sacrifice and to cooperate in the formation of the whole Christ. Grant me the grace of the spirit of sacrifice, a willingness to do whatever you ask of me, no matter what the cost. With you, I want to adore, love, and thank the Heavenly Father, from whom comes every good gift. With you, I beg the Supreme Judge to pardon my sins and those of your people. With you, I present my requests confidently, because you have promised that the Father will give me whatever I ask in your name. Jesus, help me to live the Mass, to bring its fruit into my everyday life. Give me the courage to be a Christ-bearer, bearing you to my work and my leisure. I can make my daily tasks my Mass and my whole life, my thanksgiving. Help me to live out the sacrifice of the Mass and carry you to the world. Amen. And that's no nonsense. All right. Thank you so much for being with us again. Looking forward to doing it all again next week. Going to be talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary, a little-known apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, you may not be familiar with, but it really ties in with Fatima and what's going on in the world today, so you're not going to want to miss it. In the meantime... Uh, Thank you for your prayers and for your support. And uh, thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.